Uh, we're back in Romans 9. Um, uh, we're, we're making some progress. Not a lot, but we're making some. We're all the way, uh, we finished verse 17 last week. So um, what I'd like to do is, um, I'd like to read verses 16 through 18. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to read through 20. So let me, let me um, start at 16 and we'll read through 20. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, which is what we addressed last week. Here, we haven't gone. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the lump, over the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? We won't get that far, but that's um, just, just wanted to give you kind of a uh, complete thought. Let me kind of wrap up this previous paragraph, because uh, we didn't do that last week, which I should have. Um, but verse 18, uh, guys, you will notice that verse 18 opens with the word, so then. This is a, this is a summary, it's a repetition, it's a conclusion uh, of, the, of the previous verses, verses 16 and 17. Uh, I told you he did the same thing uh, in verse 16, well he's doing the same thing now, he's just... It's, it's just a summary of his argument. This is the conclusion of the argument, and it is. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the point that he's trying to make. Um, uh, basically, the conclusion is, or the, uh, the, uh, the summary is, God is free to carry out his own redemptive plan, his own sovereign will, in his own way, whenever he pleases with whomever he pleases. That pretty much wraps it up, doesn't it? Um, and that's what this summary is. That is, he has mercy on him every wills, and he hardens him every will. So he carries out his redemptive plan when and where he wants, with whom he wants. Now, um, you know, I know that word hardens um, troubles you. I, I, uh, I just want you to know that we did address that about a month ago. When we talked about, perhaps some of you remember, it's not either or, but both and. So if you've still got troubles, you might want to go pick that tape up. But let me, it, this might help you just to remember, those that, the, that God sees fit to pass over um, are not some innocent bystanders who have absolutely no guilt of their own. They are people who are also in rebellion against God, just like you and I were. Um, we've addressed this too, but the whole idea of, well, I don't think that's fair. And I said to you last week, no, it's not. It's spectacularly unfair. And the unfairness is that God has saved any of us because we're all a part of the same uh, group of folk rebellion against, uh, in rebellion against him and his law. So out of that, out of that group a group, all of which is in rebellion, <clears throat> he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. 
Now, we come to a new paragraph in verse 19. And um, what verse 19 does is introduce another objection to what Paul is saying. Now, guys, this is exactly what, not exactly, but this is like what he did in verse 14. He has made this statement um, uh, up in verse uh, 11 about in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then he closes it out by saying, it is written, Jacob, I love, but he saw I hated. And then he addresses, this is called an ad hominem argument, guys. Ad hominem is a Latin phrase which means to the man. That is, it is simply trying to preclude the arguments of the audience to which he's speaking. He looks at his audience and he says, okay, I know this is going to be part of their objection. And so he says, okay then, verse 14, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? So he, that's the first objection that he realizes his audience is going to have, and it still does. And, and so he addresses that in verses 14 through 18. Then he comes to another objection. The other objection is, wait a minute then, okay, um, then if, if that's true, Paul, how does he still find fault? Because nobody can stand up against him. Why does he punish anybody? Because he really has no right. Because he's the one that um, has mercy on whom he has mercy. So what you get is the objection stated in verse 19. He gives his answer in verse 20. And then in verse 21, he's going to give you an Old Testament illustration of what he's trying to say. Now, guys, tonight may be a little bit frustrating for some of you, because, but we're, we'll get to it next week, Lord willing. But I'd, I'd just like to say some things in terms of just introducing this objection. This is objection number two. The first one's found in verse 14. This one's found in verse 19. But um, I, I want to just, I want to say some things about the objection itself. And then we'll get um, knee-deep in the argument that Paul offers next week. But I, I think it's important to say what I am going to say tonight. And I, and I hope you'll agree with me and see why. Just, a, just three. I have three general introductory comments, one of which I've already made. Not tonight, but I've made in the past. Guys, um, the objection that you find in verse 19 proves that the, the explanation of the text that you have heard in this room on these successive Wednesday nights is the correct one. And, and here's why that is true, guys. However you understand verses 13 through 18, however you understand it, it must land you or lead you to the place that this objection pops up. If your understanding of verses 13 through 18 does not lead you to this objection, then you've got the wrong exposition of verses 13 through 18. I've said that already once before because I had to say it when we, uh, went to, when we started with verse 14. But guys, um, uh, if the Arminian is correct, and as the Arminian suggests that God looks down the quarters of time and sees who it is that's going to believe or not, and then he elects or hardens based on what he saw, if that is true, then this objection in verse 19 would never arise. Not to mention the fact that that position also destroys the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone and turns salvation into 
a system of works because God sees what I'm going to do, and as a result of seeing what I'm going to do, he then owns me as his own. So his owning me as his own is based on something he saw me do. It's a wicked position, ladies and gentlemen. It's a ghastly position that you don't want. But I'm simply saying that position would not lead you to this objection. What will lead you to this objection is simply acknowledging the clear, simple claims of Paul. Actually, he's quoting um, Exodus 33.19. And he's quoting God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now, once you adopt that, then this objection arises. If you somehow, with some kind of exegetical gymnastic jump beyond that then you won't come you will not arrive at the objection of verse 19 do you do you see what i'm saying guys this objection that you find in verse 19 is a proof that the exposition that you've heard in this this previous weeks is the correct one because it lands you right here at verse 19 with 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 part of the audience saying wait a minute then Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That will only come up if what you've heard in this room is correct. Do you get that? Um, Guys, if the Arminian is correct, these objections are are useless. They need not come up. But the Arminian is not correct. And thus they do come up. And they still come up. They come up up every time somebody reads Romans 9. All right, that's the first thing. That's the first just kind of general introduction that I wanted you to see. And then secondly, this is kind of brief, but our third one will be rather lengthy. To me, uh, I hope you will notice the honesty and the forthrightness of the Apostle Paul in, in dealing with you. I mean, um, before you ever thought of this objection, he's, he puts it in your mouth. He doesn't wait for you to raise it. He raises it himself. Because Paul is not trying to trick you. He's not trying to hide anything from you. He's not trying to blow smoke at you. He's not trying to intimidate you. He's trying to teach you what is the truth. He deals with you so frankly and honestly and upfrontly. So before our minds can even register a complaint, Paul has given us the words himself for us to... um, He gives us words to voice our own objection because the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with us um, and help us walk through the the difficulties that truths like these present. Now, here's the third just kind of introductory comment, and and this is the one that I I thought was very important to say before we go a whole lot further into uh, verse 20. Um, Before Paul gets to the real substance of his of his reply, of his, of his answer to this objection. I want you to notice what he does in verse 20. He starts out like, I told you you got the objection in verse 19, and you get the answer that's begun in verse 20. Here's what he says. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The first thing that Paul does in answer to this, reje- this objection is that he rebukes the questioner. Um, Now, what exactly is Paul rebuking? 
Guys, first of all, let me say this. Honest people with honest, honest questions are people that we love. But people who are simply trying to cause trouble, I think, is what Paul is addressing here. He is, re- he is rebuking the spirit in which this question is even asked. You know, um, the, the, the objection is, what, God, what right has God to punish anybody? Doesn't that sound modern? Doesn't that sound so 21st century? You know, where, where God is in the dock. And, uh, and He's called to trial before the great learned of the 21st century. Um, <laughs> well, I, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me, at least. But the first thing that Paul does is try to put the questioner in his place. Um, it, it, you, know, you, need to, you need to sense this. I, and you notice how he's administering this rebuke. It's very dramatic. He, 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 he voices or gives voice to the question. And then, you know, with fire in his eyes looks at the questioner and says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Hot shot. I mean, guys, um, that's, that's the first thing that the Apostle Paul does, is address the arrogance that he sees behind such a question. You know, 21st century man, in all of his knowledge, these, these fellows, uh, you know, at uh, the Discovery Channel, they need to hear that. Very frankly, I'm preaching to the choir tonight. I mean, it's not, I, I don't think it's you that need to hear it, but just to, as we studied the text, but the, the, the 21st century intelligentsia, they need to hear, who do you think you are? The first thing I would say to you, Mr. Hotshot, is you need to realize your smallness. You need to realize your insignificance. In the midst of this whole debate, you need to be put in your place. And you know, gang, it's remarkable how often that happens in this book. That is... um, Men either recognizing or not recognizing and then being put in their place. Listen to this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Now that's somebody that understands who he is. When I go outside and I take a look at... at, Moon and stars. Gosh. What, what am I? That you're mindful of me. You know, guys, even Moses had to be put in his place. Remember, he's over there strolling around the backside of that mountain, you know, and just having himself a gay old time, and he sees the bush that's burning, and, and uh, you know, he... He says, I gotta take a look at this, and he turns to take a look at it, and, and, uh, you know, it speaks. The bush is not being consumed, and the bush speaks and says, Get your sandals off of you. You're on holy ground. 
And Moses is put in his place. Joshua, before the Battle of Jericho, remember that? He, he's walking around surveying Jericho, and, and this man shows up, and he draws his sword, and he says, all right, whose side are you on? And he says, oh, please. I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. And you remember what, what, what Joshua does? Because Joshua had to be put in his place. Joshua falls down and worships and, and um, talks. In fact, he even uses that same language, that uh, this is a holy place. This is holy ground. I guess my absolute favorite, um, I don't know whether you want to turn, but because you probably know this, uh, is Job. You know, uh, have you ever read Job? It's 44, cha- 42 cha- 44 chapters. No. Yeah, 44 chapters, I think. Um, 42. But you remember, the, the first 38 of them, there's, well, the first two, they opens up and tells you what happened. And then this next 36 chapters, it's just... You know, you have to be very careful when you're reading Job. You don't know whether you're reading the truth or whether you're reading a bunch of malarkey. When it comes out of Bildad's mouth, you, you, don't, you know what you got. But there's Job engaged in this dialogue, and finally God says, I've had it, that's enough. Come out of here, big boy. Just, well, just step out of here for a minute. And then he shows him, you know, the... The Orion and Pleiades. Where were you when, when I talked to the, uh, the jackals to calf? That's not exactly what Where were you when I set the boundaries of the, of the, of the earth? And I told the, 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 the proud oceans, thus far you shall go and no further. Where were you? And you remember how Job, what Job says? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had to be put in his place. And I think some of us need to be put in our place. Before you enter into the dialogue, before you enter into the debate, before you enter into the argument, you need to remember, who are you? Isaiah. Isaiah is about to launch this great prophetic career. Then uh, chapter 6 opens up and says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the smoke filled the temple and there were two angels covering His... And then, and then Isaiah is... You know, this famous line, woe to me, I am undone. What did God do but give him an experience where he put him in his place? There's this wonderful statement. Don't turn. Uh, it's kind of hard to find. Um, it's in Ecclesiastes 5. Um, listen to this. Um, he says, and, and this is Solomon, you know, the wisest guy to ever lived. He says, um, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. <laughs> For God's in heaven, you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Have you ever learned that? Have you ever learned that God's in heaven and you're on earth? So watch out what you say. Button it up. 
I'm, gang, I'm not making this up. This is how Paul deals with his audience who says, well, I don't think that anybody. And he says, who do you think you are? It's very dramatic. The Lord's Prayer even, guys. You know, with all the, the, the gobbledygook that is said about God these days, it's just, you know, you hear so many sillinesses and, and the disciples sitting on a mountainside being taught by Jesus how they ought to pray. And, and he says, when you pray, here's how I want you to start. Start like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Keep your silly request to yourself for a minute. And pause and remember that this is a Father in heaven. Hallowed is to be His name. You don't suffer into this presence. You don't skip to my loo as you, as you throw out your shopping list. No, ladies and gentlemen. You pause to remember who you are and who He is. You know, guys... Um, I told you we wouldn't going to jump into this argument because I, I'm telling you, I think this is as important as, as the argument itself. It's simply walking into the dialogue with the right spirit. And the right spirit, I'm going to read again because I just love it. The right spirit is this. Be not rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. <laughs> you know, because uh, God's in heaven. You're on earth. So let your words be few. That's the spirit in which we're supposed to enter the dialogue. The debate. Yes, is there, is there benefit in trying to pound out the, the finer edges of our theological stance? Absolutely, I love to do that. But the first thing you do is you, you pause to, rem, to remind yourself of your own insignificance, your own smallness. And then one other thing, and I'll quit. <clears throat> I, I want you to notice in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> the... the Will what is molded? The, the, the Greek, it's, it's, it's interesting. I could think I could almost write it all up here. But it's um, the word. Uh, that's the Greek word. The, the thing molded. That's a P. That's an L. That's an A. That's an S. And that's an M. And that's an A. It's, this is the Greek word out of, from which we get our English word plasma. But there's another English word that we get from that Greek word. We get the word plastic. 
Will the thing molded? Say to what's molded it! I don't like the way you're doing things. Gang, it is a it is an incredibly rich passion that you see in the Apostle Paul. It's a devastatingly poignant argument. And here's the argument. Oh, the plastic is talking to the uh, the, the one uh, who owns the plastic and complaining. Now, doesn't that make a whole lot of sense? That's the argument. The plastic wants to debate with God. Um, all I'm saying, guys, is it seems to me that what the Apostle Paul does before he goes further into his argument is that he looks at his audience and he says, the first thing that you need to understand is your rightful place in this dialogue. You need to get there first. And then we'll proceed with the argument. But not until. And what you see in verse 19 is so 21st century, it's nauseous. That's one of the reasons I read that thing, because you, you look at this world of ours and say, well, I'm telling you, part of what this world needs to hear is, who are you, oh man? Will the thing molded say to the one who molded it, Why'd you make me this way? No, that's ludicrous. Yeah, that's right. It's ludicrous. So, as we begin the, the, the discussion, uh, you and I both need to be reminded of our own smallness as well. That's quick. Father, I do pray that your word will become uh, more and more um, enjoyable for us as we see the real drama that's unfolding uh, a drama that, on which hangs the destinies of mankind, um, the drama that uh, contains the truth of the rich truth of redemption in Christ Jesus, the drama that tells guilty people like me that I'm safe, and I'm safe not because of my commitment to you because of your commitment to me. And might that perfect commitment that you have made to your people be the very grounds upon which we find ourselves so marvelously secure in the facing of life and eternity. We, um, we ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and good night.